My global IQ is 109. Joining me today is Dion Searcy. She served as bureau chief of the New York Times in Senegal from 2015 to 2019. Her memoir, In Pursuit of Disobedient Women, was published just a few weeks ago. Great to have you with us, Dion. Thanks so much. I'm sure your mother is very proud of uh, how you ended up, what you're doing, but this is not part of the master plan that she had for you, is it? No, not exactly. Um, I grew up in a really evangelical family in small town Nebraska and um, going to church, you know, Sunday mornings, Sunday evenings, Wednesday evenings, and other times. And my mom really had plans for me to marry a preacher and, you know, live out my days as a servant of God and being a preacher's wife. And that worked for my sister, but that didn't really go so well for me. So where'd you uh, go to school, college? Right after high school in Nebraska, I went to the Iowa Christian College. It was a very small campus of fewer than 100 kids. I snuck out one night and went to a Rolling Stones concert and got busted. Uh -oh. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, was facing, you know, all kinds of punishment, even maybe they were talking about expulsion or making me clean the roof or something like that. And I just decided to bail and go to the University of Nebraska. And it was a great decision because they had a wonderful journalism program and a great campus newspaper that I immediately got really involved in. And I just loved it. And I haven't stopped since. Did you major in journalism or another? Uh... Yeah, I did. I just undergrad. They had a nice undergrad journalism program, and, but it was really the campus paper where it was just me and my friends, you know, putting out a paper and without, you know, very much oversight at all. So it allowed us to mess up. It allowed us to be creative in ways that weren't as limiting as, you know, if we had a professor hovering over us. You know, we've had the opportunity to interview a, a number of your colleagues, journalists, and, including mm -hmm. Dave Axelrod, and I'm always mm -hmm. amazed by just how many journalists have cut their teeth in Chicago like you did. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about some of the most colorful stories that uh, came about during your years in Chicago. Mm -hmm. Well, I worked for a wire service that no longer exists called the City News Bureau, and um, it was this historic wire service that covered pretty much only crime, um, crime and, and, you know, the local government officials, um, courts and um, the mayor. I immediately, you know, was, I guess, early 20s and moved to Chicago from small town Nebraska and started working in an area on the south side of Chicago with a lot of crime, an area uh, where there were housing projects. And one of the first news conferences I covered was um, the HUD secretary, who came to town, it was Henry Cisneros at the time, and he declared this particular housing project called Robert Taylor Houses um, the most dangerous housing project in America. And that's where I was spending you know, every night until 11 o'clock. So I really got this window into a, a different world than I'd ever seen before there. So what took you to the New York Times and when did you start there? Well, it was a long route um, through many local newspapers. I started there in 2014. I covered the economy. I came there from the Wall Street Journal, so I had some business experience. Joined the business section covering the economy and writing about you know, all kinds of uh, ways that our economy was being reshaped, um, inequality and, and other areas and how women you know, in general were, were 
um, forced to make a lot of decisions between working or taking care of their kids or their parents. I mean, and that's, I guess they call it the sandwich generation. You know, when you have little kids and parents, you're um, supposed to be supposed to be caring for and then doing housework also at home. So those were some big stories that I wrote. Now, before you applied for the position to be bureau chief for mm -hmm. the West African uh, uh, office, you had already done some international reporting, hadn't you? Yeah, I'd done a little bit. Um, I did a couple embeds um, covering the Iraq War when I was at a newspaper called Newsday in Long Island um, that, you know, like many smaller papers used to have a foreign desk that no longer does. Um, and I had uh, done, you know, little stints here and there. I covered the earthquake in Haiti, which was a terrible, terrible tragedy um, when I was at the Wall Street Journal. And so I had some familiarity with war zones and disasters, but just a little. I would think the jobs, especially now as all newspapers, even the New York Times, have, have really reduced their number of foreign bureaus. It must be among the most competitive positions you can apply for. Um, and I've always been curious how newspapers sometimes will take someone who might not have area expertise mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. yet put them, embed them if you wish, say mm -hmm. in West Africa. Um, right. Sort of the philosophy of editors about taking someone who has not been an area specialist and just uh -huh. want them to sink or swim. Well, I think um, that's that's exactly right. But I think that American journalism in particular um, likes generalists. And so they like to place people, you know, who don't know anything about a situation and just throw them in the water of a new beat, you know, whether it's in America or, or abroad. And and the idea is that a fresh set of eyes can see things in a way that other people can't. You know, if you've been, if you've been to a, you know, on a beat or in a nation or wherever, you know, for a long time, you're going to get jaded. You're going to have these set views. And having a new person come in can just kind of reshape coverage and, and see things in new and different ways. So that's common, you know, um, for the New York Times, you know, all, uh, lots of beats um, are like that. Like our state government reporter now covers opera. So, I mean, it's, it's a bureaus, weird thing. How many foreign bureaus does the New York Times have now? Boy, um, how many? I don't know, but you know, all, all over the world, we have a big Australia bureau, we have a big bureau in Paris, we have a huge bureau in the UK, in China. I mean, some of our reporters just got kicked out of China. Um, but we have, you know, Latin America, Mexico. Um, in, in the African continent, we have three bureaus, East Africa, West Africa, and South Africa um, on sub, in Sub-Saharan Africa. So, um, and yeah, and it's more than, than many, many newspapers than probably any major newspaper um, in America. Dallas Baptist University is a global Christ-centered institution whose students are making an impact in business, law, medicine, education, public service, and the list goes on. DBU is honored to sponsor the Global IQ podcast and to offer a significant scholarship for World Affairs Council members towards a master's in international studies. For further information about this scholarship or about DBU in general, email Lee Bratcher at leeb at dbu.edu. So editors and even the publisher of New York Times gave you some advice, didn't they? Yeah, I got an array of advice <laughs> from just about everybody. Um, 
I was sitting in the newsroom early one morning when I was packing my bags and I saw um, Arthur Sulzberger walk by. He's the publisher and the family, you know, heir to the New York Times. And he walked by my desk and um, I actually remember I was chewing gum and I saw him and realized he was coming from when I swallowed my gum. <laughs> so I was still like, oh no, what does he want? He's after me. Um, but he came by my desk and was really, really nice and congratulatory and um, said one thing he said, if you, he, he turned to leave and swiveled on his heels and came back to me and said, um, just remember, if you, if you come to a bridge too far, don't take it. And then he walked away and there was this eerie silence. I'm like, what is that supposed to mean? <laughs> so so um, that was just, you know, other editors told me, you know, create an Instagram account. Nobody knows what Africa looks like even. Um, other people said, uh, you know, make sure you're really descriptive in your copy because it'll give people a sense of place. Um, because, you know, the truth is that many Americans just aren't focused on African countries and we just don't know that much about um, the continent. Salzberger's advice, perhaps you didn't really appreciate it or understand it at that moment. You did later, didn't you? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that um, there were some some hairy situations that I found myself in, you know, especially reporting on um, Islamic terror, Islamist terrorists. Um, there were, you know, just a, a number of situations that I think you find yourself in when you're reporting abroad where you, you push it, you know, you're away from your family for, you know, I was gone for on several instances for a month at a time. Um, and you want to get the story and you feel like you have this real purpose and, you know, you have the government's ear, you have the president's ear, you have, um, you know, the UN's ear. I mean, what you write matters and you really wind up getting sucked in. You know, I think people would be surprised. I certainly was just how much territory you covered. Yeah. You were responsible for West Africa. Yeah, so I was responsible for some 25 countries in West Africa and Central Africa. I lived in Dakar, Senegal, which is that little point, the westernmost point on the continent. Um, and I spent a lot of time in Nigeria because it's the biggest economy. Um, and so it's, you know, more, I guess you could say more important, you know, to, to, American, to Americans. Um, just because of its scale, it has a lot of oil. There was a war going on with terrorists who had pledged themselves to the Islamic State. I mean, there's, and, and Lagos is one of the biggest cities um, and uh, in, on the continent too. So there were a lot of reasons to tool around there and look for stories there, but I, I got around a fair amount. I mean, one, one piece of advice I got from one editor was don't be a tourist. You know, don't just do toe touches, I guess, in every single country just to say you've been there. Like, really let your coverage guide you. And I really took that to heart. How many stories were you expected to run? There was no real expectation. I mean, I think a lot of reporters are, are pretty insecure people, and we like to see our byline in the paper a lot, you know, just to make sure... Page. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And just to make sure that, you know, you feel like you're staying relevant. That became... You know, I knew it was going to be a struggle in West Africa for me because um, Americans just aren't thinking about West Africa that much. And then it became all the more of a struggle when President Trump was elected. And I feel like I was abroad when 
during this period of insane internal focus, you know, domestically in America, where people were really, really into um, the president and what was happening in the country, and not so much anywhere, let alone West Africa. Now, another important tool during your reporting, and for all, I guess, reporters who have this type of foreign beat, is you really have to rely on other people, uh, what you would call the, the fixers or mm -hmm. some of the freelance uh, uh, local journalists. Elaborate on that a bit, because that, I found that very interesting in your book. Sure. I feel like, you know, no one, I mean, even, even domestically, um, I had a reporter friend who used to always say, like, every story needs a shepherd. You need like that one source or that one person who's going to kind of guide you around and make introductions and give you the lay of the land. And it's all the more true in a foreign country. You know, I was going to places I'd never, ever, ever been before. I didn't even know how to pronounce until I arrived there. And I really had to rely on local reporters. And, you know, it's it, these, these, local reporters like you know it's it's kind of a crapshoot for them and for me like you don't know who they are what their personality is like you know you you um try to assess them out by word of mouth from other reporters who've worked from them but and and sometimes you um you know i found like some reporters were these you know men who were really like and wanted to boss me around and you know not listen to suggestions from me and then other times you find these miraculously wonderful human beings where um, you have this just amazing connection with and they become part of the family. And that was very much my experience. And clearly that was the type of relationship you had with uh, Jamie Berry and, and, and some of the other people that you worked with. For sure. Jamie Berry was a, uh, is a guy from Sierra Leone, who um, young, a young man who had all kinds of experiences living all over West Africa. So he had, you know, been through, he, he helped the Times with their coverage during Ebola um, in Sierra Leone and other countries. He had um, this experience of, you know, living on the streets. He was a civil war refugee from, um, and grew up in refugee camps in Sierra Leone and Guinea. He had even tried to sail abroad um, a number of times um, with, disastrous ends but and you know mm. just just in terms of like you know he didn't he didn't get injured or anything but his ship had to turn around I mean he'd had all these experiences of so many other young African uh, West Africans that I thought that um, just based on his sort of street sense alone he was going to be a viable and a really great right-hand man to have around and we became very close and, and let me take this opportunity to encourage uh, our, our viewers, since we have extra time to read now, is <laughs> what I did over the last few days and go back and uh, look in the New York Times and search some of your past articles because oh, thanks. Um, many of them are just so in, in, enjoyable. But I want to talk about some of your articles that were less enjoyable to read. Mm -hmm. And that concerns Boko Haram. I have to say, I did not uh, remember Muhammad Yusuf. I was so mm -hmm. focused really on some of the terrorist acts and, 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 and that have, have occurred over the last many years. Take a few minutes and, and tell us about Muhammad Yusuf and the movement and, and, and how really his uh, execution or killing 
took Boko Haram in a new direction. Mm-hmm. Sure. So um, Yusuf was a very charismatic, um, you know, Muslim leader who operated out of a town called Maiduguri in northeastern Nigeria, and his, you know, his message was religious, but also, you know, commingled with a notion um, that that people in northeastern Nigeria, in rural Nigeria, were suffering at the hands of government neglect and government corruption. I mean, this is a place where, um, you know, people were living hand to mouth and government officials were living in mansions. I mean, it was, it, it was the, the inequality and government neglect, you know, really, really drove the movement in the beginning. And I think to some degree still, um, for sure. And, um, you know, these, these guys were young, young folks growing up in a place where they would see the wealthy governors and send their kids abroad to the West to go study for school. And these kids would come back and take their dad's places, you know, on the government rosters and do the same things and steal money from the people and, you know, neglect people. And, and this whole notion, um, Boko Haram means Western education is forbidden. You can kind of see where that, start to see where that comes from um, and how, um, you know, these guys who are uneducated and poor would see these, these governor's kids go off and come back and do the same thing and the pattern repeat itself. And so um, Yusuf, what wound up happening is the government got increasingly worried um, about Yusuf and um, took him into custody at one point and killed him. Um, just an extrajudicial killing and that set everything in motion and incredible violence broke out and really has not stopped since then. He was replaced. He yeah, he was replaced by another leader called Abubakar Shakao and Shakao, um, was maybe, I guess, less thoughtful um, and just very, very violent. And, you know, you talk to government officials and they say, oh, he's crazy. He's a madman. And possibly. um, Yeah. And since then, Boko Haram has broken into factions and pledged loyalty to the Islamic State. And it's just gotten um, pretty out of hand. So one of the things that, that I felt in reading your book is we became so focused on the 250 girls from Shibok that we really stopped looking at other stories. Yeah. And in a sense, did that make us take our eye off some of the other atrocities that were happening in in Nigeria? Yeah, I think perhaps. I mean, I think um, these girls who were kidnapped by Boko Haram and who, um, if you remember the social media hashtag, bring back our girls, um, how Michelle Obama had, you know, stood with a poster and uh, Ellen and, you know, all all these Sylvester Stallone and all these other stars got involved with um, this hashtag. And, you know, these girls were, were, kind of celebrities in their um in their kidnapping and really it's all the world focused on when they thought if they thought about Boko Haram that is what they thought about and there were so many other young women and young men um who were kidnapped who were killed I mean right before those girls were kidnapped the Chibok girls there were some more than a hundred kids boys burned alive in a school by Boko Haram. And no one ever remembers that or talks about that when we talk about Boko Haram victims. It became really focused on those Chiba girls. 
And, and what, what you also describe is just how difficult it is for them to come back to their families and, and to their communities. Right. So half of them have been um, rescued or released through hostage negotiations that the government um, put forward. And uh, when they were released, the government immediately, the president immediately had them detained and they couldn't see their parents for months and months, maybe even more than a year. Um, or if they saw their parents, it was only for just a couple minutes uh, in under really weird circumstances. And the government, I, I remember the president, you know, parading some of the new releases in front of um, the cameras and yet the parents couldn't see them. And so they're afraid they were terrorists or yeah I mean there's so much stigma I mean you could I'm, I'm sure they wanted to get intelligence from them too you know wanted to hear what they had to say but they're also I mean the thing about anyone who has spent time with Boko Haram people are so afraid of that group that there is a huge stigma that maybe you know maybe they have um some sort of sympathies. I mean, not all of the Chibok girls, by by and large, I mean, many of them were not raped, but a couple were, and um, a couple had babies. And there's this massive stigma about these babies, right, and about these women, um, because people weren't seeing it as rape. They were seeing it as, oh, she had sex with a fighter. And so that, that went beyond, you know, the Chibok girls for sure. But those those girls, you know, were detained for many, many, many months and then moved to a college campus where their um, freedom was also restricted. What about some of them who have had children? How do you think they'll be viewed? You know, we've seen the same things in our country sometimes with children yeah. born offspring in, 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 in war. Yeah, right. I mean, I don't know how that's going to play out. Many of them are, have not returned to their own communities. I mean, there are only a handful of them who, out of the ones who were released, who had babies, like maybe four or five even. Um, but I've talked to other women who um, actually lied about where their babies came from. They would say, oh, this is my sister's baby, or oh, I had this baby before I was kidnapped. I mean, many, many, many women wanted to hide, or, or they would call their babies their little brothers and say that their parents were killed or something. And so, um, because there were instances of beatings um, of, of people who, once it was realized that you know, they were the offspring of Boko Haram. Well, in many cases, as you talk about, the women had the choice of being raped or becoming a suicide bomber or being married. And it's yeah. a story, an angle that you really worked at trying to, 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 to get and eventually were able to interview young women who had were, were going to be suicide bombers. And fortunately for them and for others, they were not successful. Go in and tell us more about why you thought this story was so important and, and, and perhaps highlight one or two of the women that mm -hmm. really made an impression on, on you. Sure, um, I had started hearing about women suicide bombers and, and girl suicide bombers. I mean, many of them were teenagers and it was, you know, that was a curiosity, right? Like there aren't that many women, I mean, there aren't that many suicide bombers in the world, but there also aren't that many women and girl suicide bombers. And so uh, over the course of, you know, a few years, I slowly pieced together what was going on. And this was at the same time when the government was saying, oh, those women are brainwashed. They're, um, they're fighters. They're supporters of Boko Haram. And 
I recall I was driving around in my Dubri um, with my fixer and good friend Shehu Abubakar, and we were passing a billboard, and it was a giant, like a PSA billboard that said, um, parents, don't let your children, don't let your daughters go off and become suicide bombers. And it's like, what, what parent would hand your daughter over to Bogoram to be used as a suicide bomber? And just the messaging was so screwed up that I really felt compelled to try to sort out what was going on. And so my um, fixer, Shehu, helped me find 18 girls um, who, all of them teenagers, who had um, been forced to wear a suicide bomb or take a bomb in a bag and, and were told you know, at gunpoint or um, with all kinds of threats that they had to blow up a checkpoint, blow up a mosque or whatever, and had, all of them had found these very clever ways to get out of it and surrender and get around um, Boko Haram's orders. One of them I met who made a huge impression on me was a woman called Balarabha Muhammad. And Balarabha had been deployed as a suicide bomber, I think I counted four different times, and either got out of it by feigning illness or, um, or actually being ill um, in one case. But the most amazing thing was she was sent with five, I think five other girls, and um, to go blow up a mosque and the girls, you know, talked amongst themselves about what they should do and considered blowing themselves up because they didn't want to kill other people. I mean, they were talking about suicide and they passed a well and they stood around and looked in the well and wondered like, could we just throw our bombs down there? And they wound up taking off their hijabs and tying them together and lowering the bombs into the well and just running like, that's out of hell, out of there. And um, the fortunately, there was water in the well. The bombs didn't go off. They went back to camp because they were lost and um, they didn't know where they were. And they thought that if they were, if they went into the town, they would also be arrested or shot because that often happened to girls come, coming into new towns um, from the countryside. They were just shot because they were presumed to be suicide bombers. So they went back to the camp and told Boko Haram, we did it, we blew you know, this up, and they were celebrated. Boko Haram was like, yeah, and then they were deployed on even more missions because Boko Haram thought like, oh, you're a ruthless killer, you, know, you can go out and do more. But every time they found a way out of it, and I thought it was really brave and amazing. Uh, I know when we have events where I'm standing at a podium for telling people why they should buy the books, <laughs> and usually I've read the books and indeed I have read your book and enjoyed it so much. And I uh, know thanks. the effort that you put into it. And I, I do hope people that will go to interabangbooks.com and order a copy today. As I mentioned, it's free shipping. Dion, thanks so much for being with us and we'll look forward to continuing to follow your reporting. Okay. Thank um, you. Thank you so much for being with us today. Goodbye.